1: as we approached the Second World War, mostly launched a massive anti-war campaign. In other words, he went around the country addressing meetings, explaining that we should not be fighting against Germany again, that this is a mistake, that the French had led us into this sort of a war already in 1914, and we mustn't let them do it again. And of course, he blamed the Jews as well for leading us into a a conflict with Germany. But that gave the fascists another really respectable campaign, if you like. Mosley again addressed lots of big meetings on this theme without experiencing heckling and trouble and violence and all, all the rest of it, because a lot of people were inclined to agree with what he was saying, at least in the sense that they were very, very loath to embark upon another major war.
2: Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History pod and today we're chatting fascists and British fascists to be exact. Have you ever wondered if your friend, family member or colleague was a fascist? Well don't worry, after listening to today's episode and the historical perspective, you'll be able to cheerfully label those with evidence. Martin Pugh is the top historian of the British fascists during the 1920s and 30s. Alec Marsh is the author of Rule Britannia, the first of his Drabble and Harris thrillers set in the period. And the three of us delve into whether the fascists could have taken over in Britain, the personalities, why it didn't work, and the present-day politicians who can be compared. Coming up, plenty more great history to come, including Vietnam and the Milay Massacre, the history of conspiracies, Winston Churchill, and much, much more. Please rate and review and subscribe and tell your friends. But until then, I'll hand you over to me talking with Martin Pugh and Alec Marsh on British fascism. Martin Pugh, Alec Marsh, welcome to the podcast. An absolute pleasure to have you both on. We've got a a giant, we're talking 1930s. And British fascism. So we have the foremost expert in that subject in Martin Pugh. So welcome. And then Alec, you've written a novel about the period about about fascism in, in your first novel of your Drabble and Harris thrillers. So I just wanted to welcome you and Martin, your book, uh, Hurrah for the Black Shirts, which is um, hugely influential. So thank you for joining me. Alec, I wanted to start with you because you've, you've written these, you very kindly introduced Martin into this chat to, to arrange this this meeting. And, it, and it's great that you've done that. And the reason why I've done that is because your first novel, as I said, is set during the 1930s. And I just wondered if you could tell us, tell the listeners, tell me, why is it that you chose this period to write about? You've written three now, but in particular, the, the the fascism of of the 30s as well in in the UK. Why was that a subject for, you, for your uh, rollicking first novel?
0: Well, I think I mean it goes to the heart of why the three of us are, or the, why the three of us are sitting here um, talking right now. Because back in 2006, 2007, which is you know nearly 20 years ago now, Martin uh, sent me a copy of Hurrah for the Black Shirts*. Um, and inscribed it, you know, best wishes. And 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 I and I immediately, like any former student of a historian, sat down and read it from cover to cover. And um and I loved it. And I have to say, it gave me the spark of the idea of a great moment of jeopardy in our recent history, um, in the late 1930s, when uh, fascism was on the rise in this country. And we, and you know. And we tend to forget this fact. You know, we know, you know, that the narrative we all grew up with, and most of us experience now, is the kind of irrepressible dominance of Winston Churchill and Britain standing alone, and all these cliches about our moral superiority and the uh, you know great escalator victory, and we uh, we won, and we're 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 great, therefore. But actually, um, I wanted to explore the fact that we do have this sort of ugly side to our history, which tends to be overlooked. And it was deeper and stronger than we thought. And um, and as I said in my author's note in the novel, Martin's book definitely gave me the, the thought for that. And, and it provided a strong MacGuffin, as Hitchcock would have had it, you know, a, a driving force for the narrative. And I thought that's exciting. The big counterfactual, what if it had been different? And setting a thriller against that backdrop.
2: Yes, we'll definitely get on to the what if. Very interested in that. Um, but Martin, uh, can I ask you, the word fascism what does it mean what is particularly the period that you're the uh, uh, you're a historian of what, what how does one define the word fascism i think we would usually say that if we want a
1: clear understanding we really ought to go to mussolini and the italian fascists uh, who sort of helped pioneer the idea of a corporate state and, and of course that's established in the 19 19- uh, these ideas in, uh, are there in the 1920s, well before Hitler gets to power. And of course, before Sir Oswald Mosley has formed the British Union of fascists as well. So I think it's it's the the general idea that, which a lot of people had between the wars, which was that parliamentary democracy is a kind of decadent system. It's on its way out and we need to replace it with something. The corporate state is an alternative, which for a fascist ought to be combined with resolute leadership. That's the sort of key, uh, in a sense, resolute leadership and the corporate state.
2: So when you say corporate state, I just want to understand what you mean by that. Because to me, that sounds like, you know, companies having uh, weighed quite heavily in favour of large corporations, large companies. The,
1: The idea was that instead of representing geographical constituencies as we do you would represent interests economic interests uh, different industries workers in different industries and so even women for example could be represented um, under the corporate state as textile workers which many of them were but they could also be represented as housewives this is one of the pitches that 1930s fascist in this country made. So it's the idea of of representing people as part of their their interest, rather than as part of a a geographical community.
2: And how about the sort of nationalist side of things? Because that's, I suppose, our understanding today, particularly when one talks about uh, German and and Italian fascists, is that there's that kind of ethno-nationalism that's a, a big driver. Does that sit well with with the definition? Well certainly fascist
1: organizations from the 1920s onwards um, were highly nationalistic Um, and and indeed part of their pitch was that the the, what they regarded as the effete liberal-minded politicians thrown up by the parliamentary system they're thinking of people like Stanley Baldwin you know that these people are not very patriotic and nationalistic they're letting down the country um, not standing up for its interests giving away bits of the empire for example that would be the sort of um, um, uh, thing that, that fascists of all sorts would have would have said
2: Well, you've mentioned Stanley Baldwin there, and I've always been rather a a fan of Stanley Baldwin. Alec, I I assume he's not the sort of... um, Well, obviously, Drabble and Harris are the two heroes of the the novel, but he's not uh, a third um, political hero striding across the landscape, a muscular... He's not a muscular political figure, is he?
0: No, no, no. In fact, Stanley Baldwin uh, doesn't make an appearance in my book. I've got... um, Since there is a strong fascist theme in it, I do have a character who is quite transparently uh, modeled on Sir Oswald Mosley um and he provides um many of the, he has many of the attributes of Mosley a passion for militaristic clothing and behavior you know he likes people to be marching in order um and i you know adopted the 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 lightning bolt logo of the British union of fascists um for an organization called the uh, um called, uh, the League of uh, the British Empire League of Fascists, which is in my which is my book um but i think I mean Mosley himself, as this sort of this charismatic leader, this righteous leader. I mean, he he, he was in British politics for longer than we think. Mm. Um, I can't remember actually, Martin. You'll you'll know, but you know he was. I mean, he was still going in the sixties and seventies with different organisations, mm. um, probably popping up on Parkinson. You know, chit chatting while smoking cigars or something. Martin, are you about to yeah, tell mostly Mosley did have a long public career. He was first
1: elected as an MP in 1918, actually. Um and so he was a first he was a conservative MP, then an independent, then he joined the Labour Party and was a Labour MP. So, you know, he knew a great deal about the the parliamentary politics that he was so critical of. And as you say, he he was still active. After the Second World War, um, uh, still fighting a few elections, his organisation did at least. Though of course he complained that after the Olympia rally in 1934, the BBC banned him for about 34 years. Uh, but he was eventually interviewed again. But it it took on the BBC, but it took a very long time.
2: <laughs> when we talk about the British Union of Fascists. And I think this is maybe something that perhaps exasperates you, if that's not too strong a word, that we, you know, we we view them as a bit of a joke, you know, famously lampooned as black shorts and, you know, this sort of uh, uniform approach with the, uh, you've mentioned the flag and it's all a bit un-British. And they didn't really cause too much of a uh, impact parliament, uh, in our parliamentary democracy. And so, therefore, they weren't really a major threat. And, and that's, not, that's not true at all, is it, Martin? I, I don't think so. Um, I mean, obviously, some people in the
1: 30s did make fun of the BUF because of the, the uniforms and the, the, the paraphernalia. That's certainly true. And some did say it was not very, not very English or British um, there, But this is to overlook the fact that the fascist organisations had a number of different ways of uh, participating. So there were alternative organisations. They had, for example, the January Club, which was linked to the BUF, but it was not designed to, 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 to do you know, street fighting and weapons and all that sort of thing. It, it had dinners in nice hotels and attracted MPs and peers, and even representatives of big British companies. And the idea, of course, was uh, to discuss with them the corporate state as the replacement for parliamentary democracy. Because what Mosley and others were expecting was that at some stage, when they get advan- um, really invited into power, they will then need allies within the establishment and the political parties and all the rest of it they'll need allies to help if you like ease the transition out of parliamentary democracy and towards the corporate state so so there are you know other ways of organizing fascism and preparing for the eventual
2: coming to power that at least is how they saw it and you've mentioned elites and the aristocracy i mean best exemplified by the asters Certainly, Diana uh, Mosley's wife. When one reads about the uh, the British Union of Fascists, the, the aristocratic side of things, I always find it's just, it just makes it's really repulsive side of it. This sort of uh, really no interest in democracy whatsoever. Is that right? Well, cert- certainly amongst the the upper classes and
1: uh, aristocratic families, there was a, a great deal of sympathy for fascism now this is partly just a reaction to what contemporaries understandably saw as the threat of communism you know the 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 success so to speak of the bolshevik revolution and its spreading influence and the threat it posed to the british empire and and all the rest of it so and and of course as we when we got to the, the second world war many people out on the far right said look This is exactly what's happening, you see, and and, and they said this, of course, after the war as well, that it's provided an opportunity for communism to spread its influence across Europe. Now, who's going to stop it? I.e. fascism is going to stop it, and that, of course, helps you to explain why even in the first year of the Second World War, uh, you know, up to 1940, there was a great deal of let's say pro-Nazi sentiment um, among aristocrats and the upper classes um, because they felt we just shouldn't be we shouldn't be fighting another war against Germany we should be fighting the Russians.
2: And Alex so what sort of themes do we get around that in the in the novel you know all all these different class structures? Well I mean I think yeah to follow on what Martin was saying as well it goes to the top I mean if you look at
0: Edward the Edward the Eighth I mean, at the top of the apex of society you know he he had very pro german uh, views he even made a comment you know about well, uh, you know the dictators seem to be quite popular in Europe, maybe we'll have one here soon at some point um he and when he after his abdication, you know, he didn't get any didn't, any better on on that one. You know, he had lots of uh, Nazi and borderline Nazi friends, and you know, um, Wallace uh, Simpson was also suspected of having Nazi sympathies. And obviously, we don't know. I don't think about other members of the royal family because those files haven't been released, anyway, as, 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 as is well known. So, no, I think um, it went to the top, and I think that's um, at the heart of of the narrative of my book is this notion that you know you have this crisis in December 1936 the abdication crisis and Edward VIII faces a a big dilemma and and the counterfactual is could something different have happened with a kind of fascist hue to it. Yeah, no, uh, that doesn't really answer your question. <laughs>
2: well, no, no, I, I, I think it's something that, you know, the novels are very good at drawing out. Uh, the Remains of the Day is is really good at this, I think. I mean, mm. whilst you, they're not sort of fascist, they're, they're, uh, I don't think, in the novel, they're, they're very sympathetic to uh, Nazism.
1: Mm. It was very embarrassing for the the royal family when the, the Second World War broke out, because um, it was discovered, of course, that, uh, for example, the the, the, the lord steward of the royal household, who was the Duke of Buclew, was in fact, uh, you know, he was a pro-Nazi, let's put it that way, and very keen on Hitler and so forth. So this was embarrassing, and the duke did actually resign from that position. And the king appointed a new steward of the royal household, who was the Duke of Hamilton, whereupon it turned out that the next one was also rather sympathetic towards the Nazis and so forth. So, another, now this doesn't mean that the new king was fascist at all. It simply indicates that in those circles, it was pro Nazi sentiment was so common that it could be quite difficult to find people who genuinely had no connection or no sympathies with uh, the Nazis at all.
2: And I was reading in the introduction of Hurrah for the Black Shirts, when you were looking through the documents of the, of the time, Is it the Dorset chapter of the British Union of Fascists? Is the only one surviving, I think? I didn't realise Dorset was such a hotbed of of fascism.
1: (laughs) You see, this is part of our problem in getting British fascism into a true perspective, because there's lots of primary material um, in the public record office. But that material tends to be home office stuff that focuses heavily upon fighting and, and military semi-military events in the big cities where the fascists got into trouble with communists and were pursuing anti-Semitic campaigns and so forth. But there's an awful lot of the country where things are much quieter, but where we don't have uh, the same sort of evidence. And the example of the fascist in Dorset, which is in the um, university library in Sheffield, is just a very unusual example of something that has survived from from a rural location. But it's interesting that Mosley himself spent a lot of time in the 30s making speeches in small to medium-sized agricultural towns up and down the country because he realized that the, the problems of farmers made them very susceptible to his economic appeal, just as he was appealing or trying to appeal to declining industries like cotton textiles. So he put a lot of effort into agricultural communities. But again, his meetings in these places were fairly quiet. There wasn't even much heckling or anything. Um, They just listened to what he was saying. Um, And so there's no, there's none of the formal records, except insofar as you can get reports in the local newspapers of what he said.
2: Was he on a bit of a hiding to nothing doing that? Because with, and the reason why I asked that is, with our first-past-the-post system of parliamentary democracy, it was unlikely he'd ever be elected. You know, we've seen plenty of new parties rise that, that fail pretty quickly. It, yes. it, is this just another example of, of that?
1: Well, of course, we can't be sure because... Um, the BUF's electoral appeal w- at a general election was never tested, although in the later thirties Mosley was clearly planning to run something like 150 or more parliamentary candidates. Um, so, but of course, the Second World War interrupted all this, so we don't know. He himself seems to have decided that he was going to stand in um, South Worcestershire, which is you know largely. Agricultural. He obviously thought he had good chances there whether, when you might have expected that he would have gone for, you know, somewhere one of the big cities where the fascists had been pursuing anti-Semitic campaigns and so forth. But, but he seems to have been, as I say, focused more on one of uh, these sorts of constituencies. So we, we just don't have enough evidence. But certainly, as you say, it would have been extremely difficult under our electoral system for a new party um, to to, to win through. He would have had to have relied obviously on splitting the vote of the national government. And also I think, and this is something else we forget, he would have tried to pull over some of the Labour vote because quite a few Labour supporters did appreciate his economic strategy as well, His, his claims to be able to tackle unemployment um definitely had a certain appeal on the left so that's how he might have done it he would have pulled together a certain amount of right wing and a certain amount of left wing support
2: we've mentioned edward viii and yeah. I, I just wanted to dive in to the whole what if martin are you, are you you're a historian listeners will be very bored of me asking historians if they're if they're happy to talk what ifs but let's assume. What's the best way of framing this, Alec? The what if is it sort of around Edward the Eighth calling Stanley Baldwin's bluff and actually just going for it? And, and, and... yes, what well, what if in December 1936, instead of abdicating as
0: as he was obliged to by Baldwin and Clement Attlee, leader of opposition, who both refused to serve and form a government if he married Wallace Simpson what if edward viii had you know summoned the king's party that many believe was starting to form and said i'm going to call your bluff and i'm going to try and have my own regime and you know um i think could would that have happened could it have happened and could mosley and the buf form part of that is probably the big counterfactual question i that would the martin what do you think <sighs>
1: It's certainly true that if the king had not lost his nerve, and of course he did lose his nerve very quickly once he was under pressure. I mean, that crisis really only lasted about a week or 10 days before he backed down. But if he just stuck to his guns, yes. What he should have said was um, he should have told Baldwin, oh, I'm I'm, I'm not going to marry immediately, okay? I'm just going to be king. Because he would then have proceeded to his coronation. And once he had proceeded to his coronation, he would have been much more difficult to shift, frankly, so he should have he should have put the marriage to one side for the time being, cr- being crowned king and there, and then meanwhile, yes, I mean he did have um a king's party forming led by Churchill, plus um of course, the usual suspects in the press, that is Lord Rothermere of the Daily Mail, and Lord Beaverbrook of the Daily Express. Um, Now, if all these people had backed him um, at a general election, well, we don't know what would have happened. But there's no question that it would have split the vote of the national government dreadfully badly. Um, And um, in the meanwhile, as I say, uh, the king could have, if Baldwin had resigned, um, uh, which was logical, uh, he could have appointed Churchill as his replacement prime minister and then proceeded to the election that's that's how it could it it could have it could have gone um, and and uh, this is what uh, a number of um, fascists were saying they used they said look look at Italy they said monarchy and fascism go perfectly well together in Italy we can do the same that's what they that's what they were saying we could go ahead um, um, uh, with these two elements that was actually quite clever in a way, because obviously uh, Edward VIII was still a very popular man. There's no no question about that. So um, if he had gone ahead on this basis with Churchill, perhaps as his prime minister, it wouldn't have been ideal, but it wouldn't have been totally impossible.
2: Just exploring that a little bit more, the Churchill of 1936 is not the Churchill of 1940, in that he hasn't had four more years of warning the country of hmm. what, is possible in Nazi Germany and which then comes to fruition in Nazi Germany. Hmm. So is the Churchill of 1936 unlikely to have either held a majority in parliament or the support of the people? Would that government have been, would that party have been doomed to fail? I don't think
1: Churchill himself command, personally commanded that much support in the country at that time. Um, It would have, it would have hung very much on the king. Edward the Eighth, as I say, was very, very popular indeed, um, and that would have been that would have been the key thing um, if if Churchill had been able to um, capitalize upon the the fact that he was ba- basically backing the king. A lot of people would have said, "Yeah, this is this is uh, this is uh, the kind of thing that we we actually um, want." And and you know, I have to say that this is the sort of crisis that fascists were looking for. They were looking for some sort of big breakdown in the, the existing constitutional system. You know, it might've been the general strike in, in 1926, but the abdication crisis in 36 did provide what they saw as a potentially a very good opportunity, a crisis that the, the, the existing parliamentary politicians can't really handle. Therefore it creates an opportunity for the fascists to step in. That's what they hoped, anyway.
0: And and of course, uh, I mean, they were going around, they launched a stand by the king campaign during, yes. during and, yes. and, and uh, fascists were going around chanting two, four, six, eight, the king must not abdicate and all yes. this stuff. And and but to go back to your your counterfactual, Martin, if the king you know he assembles this, this alternative government. And then he calls the election. Well, that means we would have had an election, which we didn't have because we had the national mm-hmm. government. And then the fascists could have put 100, 150 candidates forward and potentially got enough to mm-hmm. make a war for a king's party, which yeah. would definitely be fascist huge, which is a mm-hmm. terrifying alternate mm-hmm. reality, isn't it? You know.
1: Yes. Oh, if fascists had got representation in that sort of crisis election, then they might well have done a deal with the existing or some of the existing parliamentary leaders um, and come into power in, in that way, you know, um, because they were very well aware that both in Italy and Germany, Mussolini and Hitler had been, in effect, invited into power. Um, uh, and they were expecting to somehow be invited to take office at a time of crisis for the existing system, um, and that's so that's what they were looking for. Always looking out for a crisis which the conventional parties and politicians can't handle very well.
2: Where that I think the counterfactual falls down, though, is that we're relying on Edward the Eighth here. Yes. And he, he's not yeah. a, he I wouldn't say he's um he's, he's not he was known for his strong character, was he? No,
1: he he didn't provide the resolute leadership that fascists really hoped for. He was a weak a weak man and and couldn't face up to it. it basically he backed out. Yeah. Mm. Mm.
0: But it's a delicious thought, isn't it? They're, they're twelve hours at Fort Belvedere on the ninth of December or in nineteen thirty six when you know, he basically lost his cool and decided, "I can't deal with it, and I, I'm I'm going to give it in, throw in the towel." Mm-hmm. You know, if there'd been someone else in the room, because I suspect that he was quite pliable to advice. If there'd been yeah. someone else in the room saying, "Come on, sire, you can do it," just yep. you know, another yep. you know, another figure, perhaps wearing dark shaded clothing. You know, it could have been different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which um, which is a horrifying thought, but and and I think. I think that's one of the great. I mean, one of the joys of historical fiction, not writing history, Martin, um, mm-hmm. is that you can play with these counterfactuals, and you can you can warn people that things could have been different, and we mustn't be complacent about the things we have now or the past. And you know, if you imagine if Britain had been had a more pro-German government at that end of the 1930s, then the Second World War would have been very different. And it, you know. And yes, the, it, the world
2: will be different now. Yes,
0: certainly, that's true.
2: I just wanted to come back a little bit to the country being. I guess ultimately, uh, answering your point there, Alec, is that how close we were. It did come to it. In that, if fascism was a lot more prevalent than than we perhaps appreciate now, and and it's books like yours, Martin, that have uh, helped in us understanding that actually it was a little bit more risky than than we'd, we'd appreciated. Then, presumably, there are other opportunities throughout the 30s when fascists can, I mean, the abdication crisis is the most obvious, but are there any other opportunities that they could have had to strike? Well,
1: of course, the the British Union of Fascists wasn't founded until 1932. So, of course, they missed the 1931 crisis um, when Ramsay MacDonald's Labour government broke down and was then replaced by the the national government that would have been an opportunity had they been in, because of course the remember that in 1931 the king then George V of course played an absolutely key role in choosing in suggesting anyway a new prime minister and a national a national government. I think we do tend to forget this that it was very much the the king's intervention that led to the invitation. To Ramsay MacDonald to lead the national government, and then to the Conservative leaders Baldwin and others uh, to 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 join it. Um, we, we tend to forget um, what a role the King could play in these events if he was sufficiently you know determined um, to to sort the country out. And in that point, that King was you know um, in complete contrast
0: really to the um, his his son later on. Do you think, Martin? If I last question, do you think George V was motivated in that moment by what he'd seen happening across the water in Italy and Germany? I mean, that would seem highly likely. Um, it, it, to be honest, George V didn't think much of other
1: countries <laughs> and their and their their systems. Um, he was very British and very patriotic, and I I suspect that he that he wasn't thinking too much about about other. Other countries. He, he was looking at the material in front of him. And w- we often forget that he, the King rather liked Ramsay MacDonald, um, whereas he wasn't that keen on Baldwin. Uh, in the normal way, you might have expected um, that the King would have invited Baldwin to lead a new national government, but he didn't do that. As I say, he, he invited MacDonald, who'd after all been in power for two and a half years with the Labour government. Um, he invited MacDonald and and then put, in a sense, there was pressure on the other parties to join in with him. So I think it's very much a homegrown, a uh, homegrown effort on the part of the, the king. He's a, an interesting man, George V, because he made all sorts of really very um, important and influential decisions during his reign.
2: Not just a stamp collector.
1: Not just a stamp collector, no, indeed. No, <laughs> yeah, he th- was a stamp collector.
2: Talking about George V, Edward Eighth, it's, it's fascinating to think about. Actually, we we're, we're all led to believe that our head of state is has quite a benign role. But actually, you know, in moments of crisis, it's quite a crucial role. Yes, it, it
1: certainly can be. Incidentally, this is one of the points that many fascist organizations in this country used to make. Uh, British Mystery and British Array, for example, they were critical of the way the political parties and the politicians had kind of reduced the role of the king. And they said, we ought to get back to an earlier part of British history when the king didn't just, you know, he wasn't a, a figurehead who just launches ships and opens factories. He was a man with real power. And, and, and their argument often was that we, we want a more powerful, participating, resolute king.
2: And I just wanted to ask about the um, Public Order Act of 1936 because uh, before listeners drift off to sleep, it doesn't sound particularly exciting. But actually, it's a hugely important piece of legislation, isn't it? Well, yes, of course, it it, it, it is
1: important um, because, of course, the it is obviously an attempt to restrict um, fascist activities in and in terms of restrict the appeal. Um, in, in terms of uniform uniforms and that sort of that sort of thing. But the interesting thing to me is in a way that it took them such a long time to get round to this bit of legislation. Um, you know, supposedly it was the the violence associated with the notorious Olympia rally in 1934 that led them. But they were obviously a bit slow and a bit reluctant. Um, and it's questionable therefore how much effect the the um that act actually had on fascist activities it's difficult to be sure because of course the buf and mosley were quite um opportunistic and flexible in in what they did and in the campaigns that they they uh, they they took on um so for example there Jewish campaigns in the east end of london or anti-jewish campaigns um were really able to continue much as as before on the whole and of course when we as we approached the second world war um mostly launched a massive anti-war campaign in other words he went around the country uh, addressing meetings explaining that we should not be fighting against, we should not fight against Germany again, that this is a mistake, that the French had led us into this sort of a war already in 1914, and we mustn't let them do it again. And of course, he blamed the Jews as well for for leading us into a a conflict with Germany. But that gave the fascists another really respectable sort of campaign, if you like. Mosley again, addressed lots of big meetings on this theme without experiencing heckling and trouble and violence and all all the rest of it, because a lot of people were inclined to agree with what he was saying, at least in the sense that they were very, very loath to embark upon another major war.
2: I was going to ask about fascism in France, because obviously Spain, Italy and Germany are uh, the are very well known for having their their uh, fascist parties and governments. Was this ever a, a, a prospect in France? Well, I think perhaps not
1: not such a prospect because of course the French were um, successful um, in promoting a popular front, government which was the in a sense the obstacle to to fascism. And incidentally of course there was a, a popular front campaign in in Britain as well. Um, in the, um, the, the, the 1930s, which, which was um, uh, designed to, in a sense, push the national government in a more left-wing direction, if you, if you like, and it, it did score a certain amount of success. But obviously, other countries, um, France and, and Spain and so forth, were really much more successful in, in the Popular Front movement.
2: Um, well, then, in nineteen forty, they're they're effectively they're shut down, aren't they? In May nineteen forty, yeah, and yes. and that's 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 it, isn't it?
1: Yes, yeah, pretty pretty well in the public sense, yes,
2: right. And I just wanted to get you before we started recording. I would mentioned I was keen to find out because the term, the word fascist, is is used all the time now. Everyone's mm. a fascist, it seems. Anyone who doesn't agree with anyone else is a fascist. And before we were recording, Alec, you made an interesting point around uh, the Trumpian government being a sort of pro-corporate type government, similar to a 1930s style fascist party. Is that, is that, is that, am I getting that right? I think, I think if you look at what were the
0: hallmarks of fascism in Britain in the 20s and 30s, you know, nationalism, um, a strong, charismatic, resolute leader, a disregard for the legislature and a disregard for judicial process and you know i think you know you don't you don't have to travel too far to begin to uh ask and point of point fingers and make and make raise eyebrows and i think that if you go on social media you'll find many people who are prepared to call uh, donald trump a fascist and many um who will probably revel in that because um they they admire some of those qualities described whether The use of the word fascist as a term of abuse has has sadly diluted it so that when you actually use the word to describe someone rather than being a conservative MP you don't like, who has a hardline attitude or something. Oh, he's just a fascist um, or someone in a coffee shop who doesn't get out of your way and does something different. But, you know, the word is useful. It has been uh, diluted and of course fascists don't look the same now they don't wear black shirts and kind of breeches and walk around in jackboots but what but they but there is possibly a uniform and you know we've only just recently witnessed the remembrance day um situation and you know the counter protesters from uh, the English Defence League were out in force 126, 100 people were arrested during acts of violence. You know, there are definitely hard right politicians out there. And whether you call them fascists or not, um, well, I mean, it might take a Guardian leader to tell us uh, what the answer to that question is. But but I think um, if you look, for example, at the BUF, there was a man in the BUF called A.K. Chesterton, uh, Martin. I know Martin will remember this. And then after the war... I, I, you spend three minutes on Wikipedia, and you, you find yourself stepping through time. After the war, I think he set up something called the called the um, I don't know the the Empire League or something. But he then was involved with the formation of the National Front, which of course then merged in the 80s to become the BMP. Which, don't forget, had two MEPs not so very long ago, and you know, and and then today there's a whole. I mean in the kind of internet you find a whole swathe of far right groups of which the English, English Defence League is the largest. Um so there's plenty of these sorts of politics around, so we mustn't be complacent. I've well, said. So no.
2: And Martin, do you see anything that you recognize from your studies in the in, in the 20s and 30s today? It's hard to see anything that is
1: quite as well, I would have to say, intellectually powerful. As the 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 appeal that 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 Mosley put across, and I you know I'm thinking more of his um, his economic program.
2: Yes, maybe. we've not really mentioned the appeal that he had. Did, yeah, have um, I, mean,
1: I mean he 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 did have a lot of quite well thought out ideas about dealing with the economic depression and unemployment and so forth, um, and of course he he was in a strong position. Because he could say, well, look, I've been in the Conservative Party and I've been in the Labour Party. Um, and I don't think either of them know how to deal with the economic depression. This is my alternative. And of course, quite a few of the ideas in his programme were supported by other people who were not fascists at all. You know, some of uh, Lloyd George's ideas and Keynesian, what we would now call Keynesian ideas um. Have a good deal in common with the program that Mosley put forward. So he did actually have quite a, a powerful argument to make, and he, he could make it because he was obviously a, a considerable orator. Um, so, so I don't think we have really seen anything quite equivalent to that in recent times. We, we've no doubt seen other aspects. Of 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 fascism, and obviously the reaction against parliamentary democracy is, is clearly a very uh, continuous feature, isn't it, of these different different movements? But I don't quite see the the sort of central economic case being made.
0: Well, they're both one thing they also have in common, though, is that economic protectionism. So Bosley hmm. believed in imperial preference and a degree of protection, and that's definitely a feature of certain governments' uh, yeah. policies. Um, yeah. And I suppose he was also would also, you know, would have chosen to keep us out of the Second World War, mm. and oh, yes. uh, isolationism is another feature of of the sorts of governments we'll be talking yeah. about. Yeah. Um, it, is, it is,
2: yeah. I speak to people who are uh, well. There's one person I'm thinking in particular who's a, a, a very passionate Brexiteer, who often reminds me that Mosley was very keen on a, a United Europe. And uh, that, that's an uncomfortable fact. But are we getting is my brexiteer friend getting that completely wrong? And the EU is is bears no relation to the uh, entity that Mosley was was thinking of.
1: I, I think it's it's very different in in the sense that obviously the many of the people who had participated in the Second World War came out of it convinced that that in the future we must find ways of um, ensuring that Germany and France never again fight one another, as they have done now repeatedly with dreadful effects. I mean, there was that idealistic um, element behind the creation of um, initially the common market, as we used to call it, and then the European Union, which does seem quite a long way from uh, Mosley's attitude towards um, different nationalities, I would have thought.
2: Yes, I I like the way you phrased that, Martin. Are you right? One thing that I got, we're nearly out of time, Martin. But um, one question I had for you was that I think a theme from the book I, I'm getting is that we, we were a bit complacent about the 30s. And do you think that a lot of people have described the last sort of 10 years or so as, as being very similar to the period in the 30s? Do you think that there's a risk of us being complacent against any such threats? We've just talked about, you know, there's a lack of intellectual sort of uh, vibrancy to, the, to current echoes of, of fascism. But are we seeing a, a, a sort of a, a repetition of the 1930s at well, the both, moment? There are there are
1: some similarities. And, and actually, I would include the 1920s as well as the 1930s here, because there were lots of fascist organizations in this country then. Yes, I mean, the the common points are surely a disillusionment with conventional politics and parties, some emphasis on the growth of, well, corruption in in politics, um, which was definitely a theme of part of the 1920s, uh, uh, there and uh, there, there are some, and a tendency, I suppose, to to look abroad, to blame external, to find exter- external enemies. Now that is a common point, actually, isn't it, between today's politics and the interwar period? And of course, in the interwar period, what people were doing was, or some people were doing. Um, was producing analyses of the what they saw as a kind of international conspiracy by Jews to gain influence in the Western world, um, in the United States as well as um, uh, Western Europe, which they saw as really subverting the traditions. Now, that sort of that sort of idea and analysis has definitely reappeared, but it tends to take the form of Islamophobia. The idea of that there is an international Muslim conspiracy um, that is subverting European traditions and European values and all the rest of it. Now that's the I would see as the a major common point between the two periods.
2: We've also seen a huge rise just in the last few weeks of, of anti-Semitism as well, which we should of course guard against.
1: Well, that's that's true. That that seems to have come back, though. Well, we can't. It's difficult to know whether that's going to be a long-term phenomenon, isn't it? One hopes that perhaps it's not. But um, yes, I mean, it's it's never disappeared um, altogether by any by any means. But it does tend to fluctuate according to international events.
0: And, mm. and obviously, we've just had the Dutch elections, and uh, Geert Wilders has won. His hard right party has won uh, that election in Holland, and and you know when we we're talking earlier about you know fascist um, s- small f leaders, of course we have you know Vladimir Putin um, in Russia. Um, I don't know Martin if you could if you would care to you'd use the label fascist uh, for for Putin, but there's he shares many of the qualities that we've described, or maybe we're debasing the word.
1: Yes. I think I tend to be more concerned about countries like or some of the uh, leaders in a country like Poland, which I mean, I know they've now had a change of government and it looks as though they've narrowly moved away from a far right um, solution, which is quite a, a relief. But. Given that you know Poland is obviously part of the European Union, that seems to be a much more, um, in some sense, worrying feature than than um, Putin and, and 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 Russia. So we've got a bit of a a mixture within um, the European Union, haven't we? With some some countries lurching a bit to the right, but but in other countries a reassertion of more progressive values. So I'm not. I'm not quite sure where we're going, but but obviously democracy is being challenged rather rather alarmingly in some places.
2: It's been a fascinating chat, Martin. I really enjoyed it, Alec. So the other thing we've not mentioned, which is completely off topic, is is Cromwell's head. Martin, have you got any theories of where Cromwell's head ended up? No, I haven't. <laughs> Sorry, my my mother would claim it's uh, in her family, but um, oh grief. good, grief. yes, yes. <laughs> well, I
0: think. Most people believe it's, uh, you know, near the chapel or in the chapel of Sydney, Sussex, Cambridge, where... um... Those are
2: lies, Alec,
0: those those are lies. uh, It could be a complete conspiracy,
2: you're right. (laughs) 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 Wonderful stuff. It's been really fantastic speaking. Thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure, pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. You'll now be able to dominate any conversation on the subject and refer to this pod for any definition of an irritating fascist in your midst. Please do rate and subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up, I've got Vietnam and the Miele Massacre, but until then, thank you and good night.